0: Happy church it's that time we are in the middle of the third missionary journey picking back up in Acts uh, chapter 19 let's ask the Lord for his help father God we always need help in every aspect of life as Jesus taught us apart from him we could do nothing that's a quote And so, Lord, how much more do we need you to understand spiritual truths that come from you? God, uh, we have a lot of things that distract us and things that are hard to understand. But We pray that your spirit, who's here with us for the very purpose of shining light into our hearts and doing work on on us through the word of God, uh, that you would do that very thing, God make us able to understand and give us the courage and the strength and the wisdom to apply the truths. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I love the book of Proverbs. How about you? I mean, I just really do. I have a few favorites. Uh, One of them is Proverbs 17 and verse 24. It's a one-liner, a real zinger from uh, wise King Solomon, of course, inspired of the Holy Spirit, brilliant advice on how to live uh, without a lot of drama in our relationships, especially helpful for married people. It sounds so simple, but hard to live out in the heat of the moment. You ready? Here we go. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. Oh, man, easier said than done, as most of us know. Uh, Now, the quarrel about which the wise king speaks is one of those silly arguments about things not worthy of quarreling over, which is true of most of our run-of-the-mill human squabbles, right? Uh, You remembered it one way. She remembered it another. Who, Who has it right? Oh, it's a matter of principle. And let the games begin. An hour later, neither one of you speaking to the other. Tensions grew and uh, tempers flared. There was an explosion. There goes the dam. Now there's a big mess to clean up. And Solomon says, hey, here's a concept. When you feel the pressure mounting, just drop it. Go out for frozen yogurt instead, you know? So, yeah, uh, what we do see in the Bible is not all arguments are created equal. There are some arguments uh, worth having, and some disputes are necessary, like the one Paul is having here in Ephesus with his new Jewish friends about Jesus and eternal life. Well, let's check it out here in chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And following, Paul enters the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is what evangelical Christians and the movement was called in the first century. We belong to the way. So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And then in conjunction with the teaching there at the hall of Tyrannus, we learn from other scriptures that Paul was also Uh, working a secular job making tents and then so in this scenario when they move he's supporting renting the hall and the new work by this job of his and this is the connection to these extraordinary uh, miracles here. God did special, extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even that word means sweatbands, so the sweatbands that Paul was using while he was working and the full-length aprons that uh, leather workers used to protect their clothing from the staining and the dyeing and the mess, the dyes uh, that they would use. And so uh, if they touched him and they were his, (laughs) people were taking them to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits would leave them. So you re- really a bizarrely beautiful passage, and you don't see this kind of thing uh, too much. And so this will be the little P.S. at the end. The 99.9% of the sermon is on the first paragraph, which will appear now before you. There it is, verses 8 uh, through 10. So let's dive into what I'm calling the noble disagreement. The honorable argument here. Uh, so we're uh, we're visiting the synagogue, where, which of course is Paul's favorite fishing hole to use Jesus' analogy when he told uh, the disciple Peter, who was fishing there in the boat. He goes, "Man, from now on, following me, you're gonna be fishing." for men, for people, for souls, you see, and so if we use that analogy this is a fishing spot, the synagogue, and boy was it a good one why? because the the only place in Ephesus that really people had a working knowledge of the Old Testament and scrolls that had prophetic words about Jesus right there in front of them and so if any place was good vision it would be in the what I call the Jewish community center which is what a synagogue was it wasn't just for worship it was a place where Jews could gather uh, for community and so it's there in the synagogue that this argument noble as it was uh happened and so let's talk about it for three months oh man that says something about the the jewish ephesians doesn't it because in thessalonica what they gave him three weeks and then booted him and in the synagogue so-called the Freedmen synagogue in jerusalem it lasted three days And uh, somebody lost their life there because they didn't drop the matter. They pressed on with the noble argument. But there's a difference between arguing about dumb stuff and arguing about a matter uh, that's life and death. And uh, as a result of a decision from a conclusion you draw on that argument. Will be where you spend eternity, and so it's worth uh, uh, speaking as long as somebody is open. Now it says argued persuasively. Whenever you use the word argue in uh, in Greek, it does mean some other things. It can mean reasoning and debating, but it also includes disputing, which was going on here. There was some pushback. Now when you use the word arguing for a Christian. We have guidelines, don't we? Uh, We have to maintain godly decorum. Uh, When things get intense, there can be no anger or a loss of control or demeaning attitudes or or being condescending because that's that's off limits. That's out of bounds for a Christian. And so, uh, yeah, we have to be careful. But we are called to have difficult conversations that do offend people because the truth of God offends the sinful heart. That's just the way it is. (laughs) That's just the way it is. So uh, argued persuasively, that word's interesting. It means he reasoned with winning words. That's just meaning he was eloquent and kind and he had genuine caring for them. And he used a skillful persuasion to convince his fellow Hebrews. He's a Jew as well, right? But he's a Jewish Christian. And to come and find forgiveness and eternal life by trusting in the Jewish Messiah, you see. And so, uh, I mean, think about it. It's kind of like if a group of people are starving to death and one of them finds where the food is at they would make great effort at convincing their emaciated friends where to find that food and exhort them to start to eat. That's what's going on. So he's saying, he's opening up the scrolls, he's saying, Let's, so let me show you here, you know, uh, you're offended that the Messiah would have to suffer and die, let me show you in, in our scroll, 53 Isaiah, here you go. The suffering divine Messiah sent to suffer and die for the sins of the world right here as an offering. So that if their sins are taken out of the way, it paves a path to be reconciled back to God. Because the thing that separated you, the thing that's causing you to need to be eternally condemned would be taken away. So now by trusting in him and returning, coming back to him, that's what the word repentance means. And this is what he's arguing. You follow me in the text. He's He's arguing about the kingdom of God, which right now is invisible. And Jesus said, right now it's within you. <laughs> God's spirit comes within us. But one day soon, it will be manifested visibly physically, materially, right? And so what he's arguing there is the gospel to make sure that you know the king of the kingdom and when it manifests that you'll be within the kingdom and not cast out as the Bible calls it. And so that's what the kingdom of God and reasoning about it is all about there. And so uh, yes, why did it get a little... um, hot there in the arguing well there's a fence because they would think that we're keeping the law of moses and paul would say the law of moses isn't enough you can't be good enough it's not about being good it's about being made alive so because sin brought death spiritual death Then the issue is how to become alive, and that's why Jesus said the only way you get to heaven is by being born again of the Spirit. He comes to a person who hears the gospel and repents, and he breathes into them, and then resuscitates them. That's how you get to heaven. It has nothing to do with your behavior or your goodness at all, which is offensive. So I had a friend tell me once, I said, listen, I know you're a nice guy and you're basically a good person. He said, you bet I am. And then I said, but he says, you know what you're telling me? It sounds like you're saying that I need to come to Jesus just like a criminal or some alcoholic or some bum on the road who doesn't work a day in his life. That I have to humble myself and come the same way that they come, like a prostitute, he said. And I said, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But the issue is you have sin. And you can't erase it by being a good person. You can't go before a judge uh, for stealing a car and say, you know what? Listen, I'm sorry about the car thing, but let me tell you a list of good things I've been doing. And the judge will just look at you. What about the car? (laughs) You know, oh, that, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. Doesn't work that way. And so, in this regard, they after three months were getting a little bit hostile, and the pushback starts with the heart, doesn't it? Always. And so, what happened to their heart in your text is it became sclerosis? Is the word? It became hardened, and in the Greek, skleruno, uh, where we get the word sclerosis. So the hardening of the heart. There. Physically, and there's a hardening of the spiritual heart. That word obstinate means hard-hearted, stubborn, tough, layer, calloused. That's what it means. And so um, I, I see that as the scariest scripture in the Bible right there. One of them. There are several, right? But, and why do I think it's so scary? If you have a hard heart and you've allowed yourself to harden... To the voice of God. What's your hope? What hope do you have? God can't get to you. How can God reach you? If you harden your heart. So it didn't happen overnight. So let's talk about how did it happen to them. The answer, they kept hearing truth. And continually not acting on it. And there's lots of reasons why people hear the word of God, they understand the claims, but they drag their feet, they put the decision off, and they look for a loophole. What are they looking for? A way out. (laughs) Because they hear, if I accept this Jesus, my life is over. I have a Lord. No more doing whatever I want, when I want to do it, and even if the lines are blurred morally. You know, I, I call the shots on that. What you call sin, maybe I don't call that sin. See, so when you hear the gospel, you know some change would have to happen, and that freaks some people out, so they keep putting it off and putting it off, and that friction between the truth bouncing off of you all the time just sort of creates callousness to your conscience, and then you can't uh, be... Reached, You can't hear any longer. It all becomes numb. You know when you go in the water at Bodega? You know, it's always so freezing out there. It's not like SoCal where you can go swimming out there. But no, you go into our beaches and, uh, you know, your ankles are like, I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) die, right? Manage to stay in for more than two or three minutes and then suddenly the signal to your brain becomes less and less and less until you don't feel anything, right? Did the temperature of the water change? No, your ability to sense it changed because you remained unmoved, do you see? And so you gotta watch that for sure. Now, an obstinate heart leads to unbelief, but guess where the Bible lays the responsibility and the blame for that unbelief? Squarely where it belongs, on the shoulders of the unbeliever. And here's the line, and here's great theology on what it means to perish. They refuse to believe. Now, what does that imply? <laughs> well, there's this huge insight here in this tiny little phrase. Unbelievers are those who have heard and understood claims, the claims of the Bible, and have made an informed decision to reject it. So it's not a lack of information or trying to find the truth. They've heard the claim. They've decided, I don't want that. I want my life, not Jesus' life. And so they refuse to believe. Now, all unbelief, is an inf- is an informed decision a refusal to believe? You don't need to have been uh, three months with the Apostle Paul, hearing the gospel from the lips of the greatest preacher in the world. Yeah, no, no, you're responsible, and it's the fault of the unbeliever for being an unbeliever, says the Bible, uh, without even one gospel message ever heard. And here's what the Bible says, and I'm quoting. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to every human being. Romans chapter one and verse 19, what does Paul mean? He says there's enough clarity through creation and conscience. So creation around us and the conscience within us is given on both accounts to point to God, there's enough evidence to tell us God exists, he's all powerful and I need to turn toward him, not away from him. And so uh, every decision to to not believe is squarely laid on the shoulders and responsibility of the one doing that. And so one writer said uh, this. Unbelief is not a lack of information or a lack of faith. It's an informed decision to reject truth that was made plain to them to, and li- they decide to live for themselves instead of for God. Now, here's the thing Jesus said, because he knew we all would have a struggle giving up our lives. And so he says, if you try to hang on to your life, quoting Jesus, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, I promise you, and for the sake of the gospel, I promise you, you will save it, and you'll find your life. You'll find out who you are, because guess what? Who you are is who God made you. So how can you even know who you are or why you're here unless you know the one who designed you? You see? And so uh, that's what it is. So once a person becomes obstinate and hard-hearted, and once they've made their decision to refuse to believe, that's where the hostility comes. Because, you know, hearing the gospel after you've already decided to refuse the gospel is just irritating. It's annoying to be constantly reminded in an unpleasant way of the war that they're waging against God and a war that they will ultimately lose one day if they don't uh, repent. One writer said this sinners resent any unsolicited pinging of their consciences so they ping back you know when it's not us at all it's the bible's words we didn't invent these truths that are offending offending them this isn't our idea this is something that we believe someone else said and we're passing along his information to you And uh, they find that unpleasant enough to push back. And so in this case, they publicly malign the way, looking at your text there. Now, uh, malign is a word that combines two Greek words. That means to speak evil. And it's defined this way. For the purpose to harm, shame, or ruin a person's credibility, to murder a person with words. Uh, That just sounds awful horrible, and the haters go public and take uh, Paul to task and his associates and those who follow in the way, evangelical Christians, the way, and uh, with lies and false accusations. Now, let's do some thinking. Uh, There are five ways that persecuting others serves those who are persecuting all right number one so why does a person persecute uh, a Christian number one to create uh, distrust and animosity in the community around that person right number two to dissuade others from believing and joining ranks number three Causing enough shame and pain to Christians that they might stop preaching. And number four here on a personal note um, it just feels plain it just feels good to hurt people you hate and some people hate certain uh, believers. And then finally it helps justify their own position by stirring up other unbelievers you see they believe their safety in numbers and so the more people who agree with them right uh the better they feel about their position uh that they've taken to turn away from the bible and and trust that there is no god and is no eternal judgment and so yeah now how does being persecuted serve the persecuted uh, number one, it affirms the genuineness and effectiveness of our ministry and of our faith. Jesus said, when you're persecuted by people, he says, rejoice and be glad. And, and here's something he says that most don't understand. Because they did that to the prophets of old. Here's what he's saying. You're in good company. The reason the prophets of old got persecuted was because they spoke the unpopular truth of God to people who did not want to hear it so they persecuted them. So he says, hey, congratulations if you're preaching or teaching or sharing the gospel or just the fact that you're a Christian, rubs somebody the wrong way, just you're in good company with the prophets. So so check the box. Sometimes you think am I doing something wrong? Because people are getting mad at me and they're calling me names. They're saying I'm intolerant and, and I'm a hateful person. And I've caused division and all of these things. But Jesus has checked the box because they treated the heroes in the Bible that way. In fact, he'll say in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you, Christian, if everybody speaks well of you, then something is wrong with your Christian life because you're not shining in the way you should be. Now, I'm not telling you go out and be obnoxious so, <laughs> so you can feel better about yourself, you, you know. But sooner or later, somebody's going to roll their eyes at you and say, I can't believe you believe those kinds of silly truths, you know. And uh, so that that's exactly it. And then uh, also how persecution serves us is that jesus said you can rejoice and be really glad because you're building up a reward god is paying attention uh the god who goes to the funeral of a sparrow he keeps his eye on you and he is keeping track and he's going to reward you and he's going to deal with the persecutors he just says you keep you do your own responsibilities, is keep a soft heart and trust me. And I'll take care of your reward. And he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's my department. And he says, quote, I'm quoting God. I will pay them back, period. Signed, God. So let me do it. Uh, I'm better at this than you. And uh, that's how it serves us uh, in Uh, racking up some eternal reward it also persecution will grow our character it will humble us uh, it will teach us endurance and it will help us learn how to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us right because uh, we need some practice at that and so that's helpful and then finally uh, persecution serves the church and uh, by, by this it causes it to grow now what do i mean by that Every time in the New Testament you see the church being persecuted, what happens? There's explosive growth and blessing. Why? Well, because this. There are few things in, world, in the world worth dying for. And people in the world are hungry for genuine truth, And when they see people who keep getting whacked and smacked around and injured and they keep getting up Sunday after Sunday and doing the same thing over and over again and not just pastorally, but you, that you don't quit, that's attractive. Something worth dying for. It's like a magnet to somebody without purpose and without direction. You cannot have purpose and direction without the God who created all things and including you. So, yeah, we get their logic to persecute us and persecute and malign the way. Uh, we get the the here's the logic. <laughs> if you make something somebody's doing, painful for them you would think they'd just stop doing it and so that's the logic we're going to make it painful for you so when you mention jesus or you want to share the gospel or the church is growing oh my word you know you're going to get smacked insulted or pantsed in public uh publicly maligning that's what they did they pants them in public like that like they shamed jesus and pantsed him They tore his clothes off of him and stripped him in public, the son of God. This is the way the enemy works and then publicly slandered. And by the way, (laughs) whenever anyone slanders a Christian, it's pretty, very, it's good. It's good stuff. You know why? Because the devil's name means slanderer another word for the devil is maligner and so he who is named maligner maligns well you see so he knows just how to lay it out so that it sounds believable it's persuasive and it works to really hurt people but see here's the problem (laughs) yes it hurts and Paul was hurt and the disciples were hurt, and Christians were crying, for sure, right? But guess what? It's not going to work if it's God's idea, God's will, God's plan, God's spirit, actually within us doing that work. And if there's only one hope that someone has of escaping hell and going to heaven, and God is determined to keep on going, and we are as co-workers well then come on bring it bring it because you can chop our heads off you know jesus said some of you quoting matthew 10 some of you you're going to lose your heads they're going to hate you so much they're going to chop your head off next verse but don't worry not a hair on your head will be harmed it's like, Jesus, the hairs on our head will be on the floor <laughs> with our head, you know? And Jesus said, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be, and you're going to be like, what was that about? And you'll be standing there in eternity, reward for that, and you will not feel pain. You will be fine. They will have done you a real favor. They would have sent you forward into uh, what Jesus calls. The paradise of God. Yeah, so thank you very much. There you are. So there you go. And, and who wants to stop? And, and here's the deal. If one of you unbelievers who, who's out there is turned and we meet you in heaven reigning and ruling with Christ as a brother in Christ who's been redeemed, instead of seeing you at the great white throne at the end of the millennial kingdom where you'll be sentenced For your crimes, spiritually speaking, and tossed into outer darkness forever. If we meet you in heaven as a brother redeemed by the blood of the lamb, instead of that, then it was worth it. Then it was worth every bit. And I already know of people in our own lives that have been persecuted and as a result of the persecution people have come to christ and so it's just worth it it's just worth it it's a sad reality it's a painful necessity uh, that we have to accept as part of the deal jesus said look they hated me they called me the devil quoting jesus they called me the devil how much more what are they going to call you you're my followers you see So uh, this is a smear campaign. And I do want to say this because it's kind of hilarious. Uh, Believe it or not, how did a public smear campaign happen in the first century? Um, Newspapers, they had newspapers. Now, how did they work? A little differently in 59 B.C. The Romans invented the acta diurnal. And what that stood for, acta, means things that have been done. So recent news, and then the diurnal means daily. So what they would do is make in these towns and provinces, they would make a few sets of news and they would post them at places places, um, designated to get your news of the day and people would gather and they could read it and they'd have shouters. Who would shout out? You could call them criers, and they would cry out the news right there. So they were all over town at strategically located places. So now, somebody went to the, to the what do we call it? The Acta Diurna Crat. <laughs> Sorry, I put the crap on it. <laughs> And they said, hey, listen, I got a story for you about this man. He comes into town. He's really abusive and oppressive. He's terrible. And all of them, they're all saying terrible things and dividing families and brainwashing our children. They need to be stopped. And then they print quotes and misquotes and exaggerations and lies. And then the criers cry out about the way and about their pastor, Paul, that horrible human being. And so that's how it worked. So Paul left them, and I do want to say in verse 9, he didn't leave with hate in his heart. He left, no doubtedly, with a prayer of blessing on his lips. For who? His persecutors. That's how Christians roll. Why? Because it's how our Lord rolled right and let me show you in first peter chapter 2 verse 23 when they hurled their insults at him christ when they stripped him they shamed him beat him spit in his face made fun of his mother did you know that they implied publicly that his mother had him out of wedlock john chapter 8 We weren't born from fornication like you. Shamed him, his family. What did he do? Well, I'll tell you. And he took out another ad in the paper, and Jesus said, listen up. No. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly he sees everything, is working everything out perfectly so Paul's motto was this I'm going to follow the teachings and the example of Christ here it is 1 Corinthians 4 when we work hard with our own hands which is we're getting to he's, he, he works hard with his own hands and God's going to reward him for that When we are cursed, we bless. Whoa. We don't curse back, we don't stoop to their level. We don't let our hearts become poisoned with bitterness and resentment and hate and anger. That's unbecoming of for God's holy people. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, lied about, humiliated, we answer kindly. Whoa. Now you need the Holy Spirit and you need to be on your knees, and you need to be a committed Christian. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. And it says, That's okay, that's our lot right now, but this, there's a great reversal coming when, when the scum of the earth will become the rulers of the earth. Jesus said, he called it the great reversal, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you. Can I show you one thing that Jesus said? And... Uh, out of Matthew chapter 5. It's a paraphrase, like new living. I, I just love it. Jesus says, you've heard, it, you've heard people say, we should love most people, but it's okay to hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you be like your Father in heaven, because he blesses both evil and good people and lovingly provides for those who believe in him and for those who don't. If you only love those who love you or are lovable and nice, what are you doing more than the rest of the world? Even atheists do that. Don't even godless people love only people that love them? What are you guys doing more than they are doing, you see? And so it's a real challenge. Listen, you don't think Paul has human emotions? He had to work through them. Of course. You don't think he was angry at the lies? Of course he was. But you, you go from your pain, your grieving... You're wanting to retaliate. You're wishing that they would something terrible would happen to them. And then when something happens to them terrible, you're, you're happy about it. The Proverbs say, don't gloat when your enemy stumbles, lest God turn his attention to you. Instead, I'm like, oh, no, I'm happy. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. <laughs> All right. So they move on with a good attitude to... Uh, the hall of Tyrannus, all right? Uh, now, who's Tyrannus? Well, a couple of things. He could be a believer because after all of that press, the bad press, who's going to rent to people of the way, right? So a lot of people say probably is a, a Christian who's saying, you want to use my place? That's possible. Or he's just a guy who wants to make some money, right? Or it's a, it's named after some influential historic figure there in Ephesus, like we would do, like George Washington Hall, right? Something like that. But, you know, of course, before they got around to changing that name, George Washington, uh, because it triggers people. And, okay, fine. (laughs) You don't want to go to your safe place? I'm not going to force you. (laughs) So there's a little (laughs) home. Banner. There's a banner hanging over the front door of the School of Ministry, I want to call it, because Calvary Chapel really does the same sort of uh, thing. It's like a little equipping center. It's a, it's a Bible college per se, for training uh, ministers up and then sending them out to evangelize. And it was very successful, probably the most successful thing that Paul has ever laid his hand to, thanks to God's spirit, uh, in his entire lifetime. And so, yeah, so how did that work? Well, how did it work? Let's talk about the Hall of Tyrannus and what went on in there. Uh, Some Greek manuscripts, believe it or not, have the time of day they used it. And uh, it's printed in there that says that they used it from 11 to 2, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. daily. Now, that makes sense. Even if it's not legitimate scripture, commentators say that's what happened. So what happened is that in the heat of the day, nobody would be stuck inside a lecture hall (laughs) or an auditorium. In fact, most businesses in the Mediterranean, in that day and still today, like to take a little break at the hottest time of the day. And they have a meal, and they have a little siesta, right? And uh, so uh, what happened there is, is that somebody from the group went over to Tyrannus Hall and said, you got some dead time. We'd like to rent it. And they said, it gets hot in there. And they said, well, we know someplace it gets a lot hotter. So, uh we like to avoid uh people going there, and so <laughs> we're interested now i I just think of what I would have said there, and so yeah, so uh they secure that time, and so, commentators put piecing together other parts of the New Testament. Paul is going to be working making leather goods and making tents. That's what he does, and he's going to pay the rent and support these missionaries that go out. with his own hands. So what did he do? He got up at sunrise and he put on the sweatbands and the long apron and he went to work. And then at 11 they all met for discussion. It's just training time. It's him teaching, preaching um, and mentoring these mostly young men who were going to be sent out into the province of Asia is 2 million people. Uh, to start churches. Now this Tyrannus ministry here if I can call it that, is not a church per se it's a church ministry because the churches operated differently with a pastor and all of this but this was an equipping center this is a ministry that met daily can you imagine and so after work they uh, he would meet there they'd have a meal probably and then until they got kicked out uh, there they were uh, teaching equipping and uh, uh, until luke tells you the entire province of asia heard the word of the lord now We know of seven churches where Paul never visited, and they're called the seven churches of Asia, and guess how they came to be. The seven churches of Revelation, they're the fruit of Tyrannus Hall. Let me show you a map. This is Turkey. The province of Asia was most of Turkey. Well, just a a part there two million people lived here. John is writing to uh, the seven churches of Asia from Patmos, the Isle of prison island there, where he's banished for being a witness. Um, and so from Ephesus, then all of these churches are starting and scholars say for sure. Uh, there's also other churches. There's Colossae and uh, there's uh, Galatia that Paul started. But Paul, went to those places. He's never been here except for uh, Ephesus. And so scholars uh, conclude that the fruit of what was going down uh, at Tyrannus Hall was established there at the churches uh, of uh, Asia there. Now, uh, Pastor Bond and his wife, Heather, have been missionary evangelists who have used this method. And now, as they've been on staff here, uh, we use the method as well. And and Calvary Chapel has always used this method of school of ministries. We have them all over the world. And this is exactly what we do. And I just want to show you, it's phenomenal, a map and two families that this church uh, supports, but we also have our hand in every red dot you see, there's uh, something of our ministry um, being effective there. And so you have these two families, and what happens is the men go to the school of ministry. They get raised up, and their families sometimes go along, and it's just just a beautiful time. They are taught the word of God. There's discussion, that word dialoguing back and forth in our text. That happens. And then the whole province is evangelized because they go out and they plant churches and uh, we have the privilege of supporting and, and and these third world countries are so wonderful to, and easy to support because our dollar <laughs> goes really far there and so we can really do a lot of work. So thank you for that picture but I just want you to see that it is amazing. There's a bunch of churches that we're involved in uh, but that's our heart especially in that part of the world outside. That's how we do missions, is the Tyrannus Hall approach, is raise people up in their own language. They go out in their own communities or wherever God would send them, and they do. Now, let's get to that bizarre couple verses that seem like there's no connection to the text, but they do. They're exactly connected because he's sweating and working with those um, uh, clothes that God is going to empower. So verse 11 God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs, sweatpants, and aprons that had touched him that he was wearing were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Now the word you've got to look at here extraordinary God is telling you, by using that word, this is out of the ordinary, this is not how I usually work, and this is not what I'm asking Christians to do. I was doing something at that time that was extraordinary, and what it was had to do with um, a word about the sacred nature of working a secular job, I believe. So hear me out on this. Uh, Work, as we know it, is a divine calling, And uh, not something that uh, is often pleasant to our ears. I've got to work. I've got a job. uh, But it's God's way he designed us to be. A lot of people think of it as a curse, that it came after the fall. Not true. Look at this verse from Genesis chapter 2, one chapter before the fall. The Lord God took the man that he just made and put him in the Garden of Eden to work to work it, and to take care of it. That's a job. He had something to do. He makes man and gives him something to do. And we all have been made and given work to do. And we can think of it as a curse, but it's actually a blessing to be productive. That's how God made us. And by the way, (laughs) It's just as it will be in the paradise to come. Please don't think you're going somewhere to sit on a cloud, strum strum a harp, and eat bonbons, right? I have written down here, what is a bonbon? I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't think it's a chocolate thing. All right, so no. reigning and ruling. One writer's put it this way about your future, you who don't like work very much. It will be in all manners delightful a work without woe, meaningful, necessary, right and good, rewarding. The coming kingdom will be a place where there'll be an air of leisure, ample adventure, sacred, joy-filled celebrations, and responsibilities that keep God's people always productive. That's it. The only place where people are free from the obligation to work is hell which is part of the misery. People who perish are eternally unemployed. So uh, first thing to note here is that um, God is doing something different here, as I said. And so, yeah, uh, so somehow somebody touched, somebody maybe had a leprous arm and they happened to, maybe by accident, God's providence, touch a sweatband of his and they had a miraculous healing well once news got out of that you know then people started looking for his clothes (laughs) and you know it's like the hem of jesus garment someone touched it and power came out only jesus was in his garment at the time and in this case they're just the garments so what is god saying i see three takeaways and then we're done number one i think there's a message here um to the general public of ephesus Paul has been publicly smeared, lied about, false accusations, and now this is God's way of vindicating him. What are, what's the news around town now? What are the town criers crying out now? Well, there's no way this is going on and not making the news. So now what do they have to hear? The man accused of being a false prophet and a horrible human being is actually not oppressing people, but even his clothes are healing people, not harming them and setting them free, not oppressing them. Exact opposite of what he was being accused of. And so vindication is our heritage. God promises, says the one thing I'll promise you, Christian, I will vindicate you. Uh, we love it when it comes in this life. It's really nice, and it often does. But in the life to come, vindication uh, is ours. And so this was God's way of saying, this guy, he's a good man. He's my man. And good things happen around him. Healing things happen around my man, Paul. Cry out that. and That's just beautiful. Secondly, it's a message to Paul personally. I think he's a human being. He gets frustrated. Uh, I'm spending hours and hours and hours with leather goods. Well, huh. I could be preparing for Sunday. I could be uh, praying. I could be doing all of these things for ministry. And the Lord's like, no, dude, listen. You're where I called you. And I'm going to use your secular job. And I'm using it. You're planting seeds in people's lives. You're where I called you to be. No, Paul, it's not a waste of time. It's just the opposite. So when you're lifting and scraping and cutting and measuring uh, you might as well be laying hands on people and praying and preaching because I'm going to imbue your secular work with divine power that as a result of your work people are going to be healed and set free now once Paul saw that this was associated with his sweat and his labor he got up at O'Dark Thirty with a different attitude didn't he? Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to start sweating because he knows that what God is going to do because of his efforts there is going to bring healing and life. I was like that. I've worked a secular job my entire ministry up until 10 years ago. I didn't always enjoy it, but the Lord changed my attitude with a scripture like this one and said, see it as your mission field. And so do a good job for your employer, but also look for opportunities. So I, I, I was in a meeting at 6 in the morning on my shifts always that didn't involve me. but I had to sit there and was bored to death. So I started a prayer ministry. And every meeting I pray for every single person in the room, 100 of them. I just went down the line. I had lots of time. And I pray for every one of them. And I share the gospel here and there. One day with somebody, I shared the gospel with. He had a stroke in front of us, fell over, and died. And the Lord said, "You're, you're in a good place. I want you to be here." So we need to start thinking of God bringing the gospel, because where the Christian goes, the gospel goes too. And so that's a different attitude. It was a joy to go to those meetings. I started looking forward to the boring meeting. Why? Because I would listen to their lives and pray about what I heard outside of the meeting, you see, and how God would work in there. And you'll only see the result of this later on. And then finally, God is speaking a message to the entire Christian world who has to work a secular job. How do you think this works? Somebody is taking a piece of their sweatband and their apron, a portion of their apron, and putting it in the box there. That's how this happens. Every dot on the map, how do you think that happened? That happened as they came in contact with what came in contact to you. A fruit of your labors there came and you participated. And they came in touch with that and they heard the gospel and they've been healed and set free always. The hundreds of people have been through here have come in contact with the fruit of your labors if that's the case. But that's how God designed it and I think that's what God's trying to say through these extraordinary miracles. Let's pray together. Father God we just thank you for your love. We pray God that you would uh, Bless us now as we consider these things and try to apply them. God, thank you for the encouragement you bring. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.